welcome to Three at the Back, the Football Analytics Podcast from Opta Pro. I'm Ryan Barr and I'll be your host for this episode. Much like Tranmere in this year's uh, Vanarama National League Playoff Final, we're, we're down one today, so as such we're going with uh, the less popular formation of two at the back. I'm joined today by Head of Opta Pro, Ben McCrill. Ben, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me again. Uh, thanks for the Tranmere reference to kick off. Pleasure. Uh, some game them going down uh, to 10 after a minute, but... Uh, yeah, enjoyed the watch. Yeah, we're, we're definitely, at least we're starting with a man down rather than going in 50 seconds in and then losing one. Someone getting overexcited, we're, just a little bit into the pod introduction and yeah. having to leave. We've planned for it, so that's a good start. <laughs> so we are recording this um, about a week or so before the World Cup gets underway. So before we start, I'm going to quickly ask you for a, a team of interest, a team of note, a team that you're excited by. Um, but if you think about calling Belgium your dark horses, that, that, that's the end of the pod. I'm surprised they were the dark horses last time. I, I can't quite get my head around that still. But um, Again, I'm not sure this is really a dark horse pick, but uh, I was looking at Croatia's squad uh, and the embarrassment of riches that team's got. And at top European clubs as well. Um, you, if you look past even Lovren and uh, Subasic, uh, and obviously Modric, you've still got top players. Kramaric has been banging them in for Hoffenheim. Um, you've got even players like Brozovic, who plays at Inter, probably won't get in the starting eleven. Um, so yeah, I think they'd be my team of interest. I think it harks back to their sort of '98 World Cup when they they were good as well. So <laughs> that will seek their team exactly. And you were recently back from Munich, is that right? Yeah, um, spent a couple of days in Munich. Um, as part of the FA's Level 5 Director of Football course um, that they're running at the moment, which is a, a fantastic course for, for both current directors of football in, in the Premier League and the Championship, um, but also uh, in the women's game uh, and aspiring directors of football. Uh, it was a fantastic group, really innovative thinking. And uh, us alongside 21st Club, uh, we did a presentation to them uh, for a couple of hours on um, how you can use data for managerial hires um, and their general recruitment process. Um, really engaging group, fascinating conversation, uh, and, and definitely a, a really, uh, really good new course that the FA's put together, uh, and definitely some buy-in for, from some top people. Good stuff, good stuff. And um, the federation, the World Cup, um, Chad Elliott sort of leads in nicely. We're going to talk a bit about international football. That's going to be our focus for this episode. But we're going to go a bit beyond the, the the well-known discussion topic around the pitfalls of scouting at international tournaments, the fact that you can only do so much with uh, minimal games. We're going to look sort of beyond that tip of the iceberg and what federations are doing when it comes to them working with data and technology and what goes on behind the scenes. So we're going to start by looking at that sort of education process that, that goes on within a federation and how they, they train their coaches, their analysts, their directors of football right across the, the whole spectrum. Yeah, I think it's definitely something that's uh, evolved over the last few years. There's a number of federations um, that we're fortunate to work with who have really evolved their processes over the last few years. I think you hear a lot of um, uh, talk out of federations and national teams about uh, working through World Cup cycles or working towards goals. You know, we're hearing a lot about the, the FA before this World Cup about you know the real goal is to win 2022. So that all comes back to starting a process somewhere, and I think it's uh, it's been quite evident in a number of federations that they have a much more long-term strategic approach, and they're putting in a lot of foundations around that, which obviously, from our perspective, involves data and technology. And that a lot of that concerns not only the players, but also the the people working around that, yeah. making sure that the the processes, the structures are in place right from sort of 
in some cases under 12 level right across the uh, through to the pathway to the first team yeah I think we've talked about this on the podcast before and within football clubs you can't just evolve your philosophy and your processes around your first team it has to be developed through your academy systems it's not just about the players you're developing staff often come through those ranks as well I started in the academy most analysts started as academy analysts scouts often start in, in youth football so I think it's very much about the pathway for not only your players but also your, your general ethos I was reading something about um, the atmosphere at St George's Park being like an academy atmosphere and that was something they were really trying to cultivate uh, and I think you've seen that obviously in the youth that's in this in this England team that's going to the World Cup this time um, but there was a lot of talk again about the, the England DNA something that you know Dan Ashworth has been a massive part of, of developing and you know even he said they're, they're starting to see players now who are in this national team who have come through that process and, and have come through category one academies and, and have learned kind of the way of playing through that, that process but actually we're probably still three, four, five years away from really seeing the fruits of that process and, and that is a real long term approach and that's what we're seeing a lot of federations do now they're, they're um, trying to develop their coaches they're trying to uh, empower their coaches with more knowledge there's a couple of federations that, that we're close with that are really putting the emphasis on developing their coaches skill sets as well as the players if they can develop their coaches use of technology their coaches use of data um, really empowering them to, to uh, analyze the game in a deeper way and not just rely on the analyst or not just rely on the scouts for information but actually get them to do it themselves um, that's been a huge move forward I think in in educating coaches we've talked a lot I think before about um, the sort of generational shift of this type of thing and I think federations and governing bodies where they can look a bit more long term is a great example of where that's happening yeah I think that's probably a really nice way of how they've they've taken a challenge and what could have been a negative in terms of not having that contact time with players every every day like clubs have got but you know taking that advantage over a longer period and seeing how they can change things over a longer term I think um, that is one of the challenges the federation faces of not having that daily contact with players over a longer period yeah and that's talked about a lot and and I know a lot of people who've um, who've actually you know had opportunities to maybe go and work with with a governing body and this is you know we are not just talking about England here that there's multiple governing bodies around the world that, that we're very close to um, and they all have very similar approaches but have very different markets and we'll talk a bit about US soccer as one example it's a huge country they're actually spread out across east and west coast so having a process and having something that everybody can align to is really important and the contact time with players is an issue but the amount of work you can do in the meantime and the culture that you can develop and remember you know people talk about the fact that the, the contact time that the England manager for example gets with the England players what people forget is that in between training camps in between international periods those players are still being fed information from the national setup. They're not out in the wilderness with their clubs and disappear and then come back and have to learn everything again. They're constantly being fed information. So contact time doesn't have to be on the pitch at St George's Park or um, in Chicago. It can be remote. You know that's the way most businesses work now. Football's no different. And how do you how do you see an analyst's role at a um, at a federation being different to that from a club? Obviously. 
with a club it's very much week to week day to day probably you know there's probably gonna be 101 things that come up every day but that's that's really not the case with an analyst role in terms of a national team uh no but at the same time they still have the same number of matches to analyze because they're analyzing the whole competition or every player's game that could be up for selection and remember this is not just senior level this is 21s under 19s um so at any age group at any level of the game they're still analyzing all these players and if, if you think of the, the the size of the pool of players that some of these federations are picking from it's a lot of players in a lot of different countries that they're having to track so it's uh, they're definitely not got their feet up between international periods you know there's a lot to do and as i said before i think one of the major shifts we've seen is the amount of contact time the analysts are having with the coaching staff because the majority of coaching staffs in federations are just for the federation they're not working at clubs in the meantime that used to be the case but now you know the under 18s coach that's his full-time job with the national team which means the analyst has all of the time because he's got no one to coach so what are they doing they're watching video they're looking at data they're tracking player progression they're looking at training programs for the next training camp there's plenty to do and looking at that side of things in terms of not just first team but as you mentioned in terms of the youth side as well we know that some some federations are now looking to, to benchmark players over a really long period and almost take a, a bottom-up approach if you will rather than sort of go from the top down yeah that's i think again the most obvious example is this england dna approach um, but it's definitely something that's um, being looked at at multiple federations we work with a couple in europe and and, and a couple further afield that are doing very similar things and, and are tracking data over a much broader period. Um, I think US soccer is, is probably the best example we can use at the moment. Um, a relationship we've cultivated over a number of years. Uh, and for the last two seasons, we've been tracking players across all of their academies. And, and the USDA uh, setup covers all of the MLS academies as well. So all of the competitions that those teams are playing, and we're talking MLS academies, all the way down to guys um, at under 16 level, teams in small towns in the US across the whole landscape of the US. Uh, we are collecting data on thousands and thousands of games uh, from under 16s all the way up to, to senior level. And that data is being used to, to track that development process and, and to try and identify talent, um, but also to kind of create player profiles as to what um, the US national team expects from certain positions, from certain player types, but also to, to generally track player progression. Um, and as we know from general culture, um, you know people develop at different at different states at different uh, rates, and you know you have to track player progression because otherwise you are going to miss talents, or you're maybe going to misidentify talents. You know, there's been plenty of examples of players who've been glorified at 16 and haven't been successful and there's plenty of examples of players who've been missed out of the system Jamie Vardy who then turns up in the, in the England team and, and you know has been a big success so I think that's what these federations are trying to do they're trying to track and try not to miss any players uh, through the net and, and certainly the scale of what US soccer has done is something on, on, on a scale again that I've never seen before and we're delighted to be a part of that process. Excellent. And I remember one one national side manager a few a few years ago spoke about trying to um, bring in a, a left-sided centre half, and you could see that 
and it sort of allowed you to join the dots that within those youth teams and that senior level you saw a lot of those players coming through and being given a chance that perhaps you wouldn't have you wouldn't have thought so but having understood the process and the thought what goes on behind it that that pool is widened and you can see why certain players get selected or involved at certain levels as well which was um, a nice reinforcement of that process yeah I mean I think I spent most of my scouting career um, trying to find a left footed centre back um, so yeah there probably isn't a left footed centre back I haven't, heard of, <laughs> haven't done a piece of work on but yeah I mean that's a great example I think there's always going to be positions or types of players that countries develop better than they develop others and you know we've talked a lot on previous podcasts about different styles of play in different leagues and that cultivates different types of players um, so I think that's something that this process will certainly help federations to understand better um, can they identify skill sets that maybe they move a player to a different position because there is a, a dearth of talent in that in that position or there isn't um, so I think that's something that, that these federations having more data having more video having more knowledge of the breadth of, of youth football within their um, within their markets is, is a massive part of what they're going to do and I've always said that you know I think the, the US national team at some point will be a real world power you can't imagine that it won't be the same thing I've said about the MLS um, and I think certainly the way that they're using data and technology to to really evolve what they're doing uh, is is testament to where I think they'll be in a few years time. Agreed and I think another another interesting challenge around around federations is they'll they'll spend a lot of time um, developing an, a philosophy a, a culture um, but they've got the additional challenge that they, there's no transfer market essentially <laughs> um, yeah. so you're almost you know some you see some I think Portugal for example 15 years without a the centre forward that matched the rest <laughs> of the team I think they're probably the, yeah. the showpiece example so there is always the uh, the risk, the challenge that if you have your set philosophy, that you need those players to be able to execute it as well. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, if you correlate that with the majority of club teams, you know that we talk about this global transfer market, but everybody has a budget, everybody has a, a market that they're specking to. Um, so every everybody's limited by what their capabilities are and what their resources are. But you're right; national teams are a very unique. Uh, scenario, and I think that's why tracking development of players from a young age um, enables them to maybe broaden the scope of, of the talent that they have. They know more players; they're able to shape players' careers and um, to support their growth in the game, uh, and that hopefully broadens the pool of players that they can bring in. But yeah, you're absolutely right, and that goes back to the challenge that club teams have: where do you? Um, fit your philosophy your playing philosophy to the players you have or do you try and find the players to fit a philosophy and you know I have to say I think from what I've seen of Gareth Southgate's England team he's trying to fit the philosophy to the players he's got he knows he's got speed he knows he's got um, a certain uh, number of players who can play certain positions but he's got a limited uh, talent in other areas so he's shaping the philosophy to, to the way they play and certainly from what I've seen so far I think he's you know he's definitely doing the type of thing you'd imagine a lot of club coaches have to do maybe in the lower leagues where they can't sign players on a you know they can't turn over their squad regularly um, I think they have to fit the, the philosophy to the you know the players that they have so uh, it, it'll definitely be interesting you look on the flip side you look at someone like Germany who's able to leave Sané yeah. at home 
you know if you if you've got that amount of talent and you can shape things uh, that way then you know you stick that any 11 I think from that German 23 out there they're going to be uh, pretty hard to handle yeah and I think Germany and England are probably two quite nice examples for um, for showcasing a joined up group across the ages so yeah. we're not seeing now that the under 17s under 18s you know will do something entirely different right. to to what goes on at, at under 21 at first team at a senior level and I think probably you know we've got two long tournament going on at the moment we've got the World Cup around the corner and there's obviously under 20s under 17s last, last year so we're seeing a lot more federations try to be joined up across those different age groups yeah and I think you know Germany was held up as the standard for for the last few years obviously with World Cup and, and Euros wins but um, uh, it was interesting I, I heard somebody from the, the German um uh, DFB uh, do a presentation quite recently and they said that you know it was only in the early 2000s where they realized they had to completely overhaul their academy system their national team selection process and that bore fruit and I think that's essentially what um, certainly the English FA US soccer have been saying is that they needed to look at the processes underneath and that it would take time to develop the talent through that system um, t- to enable success and I think we obviously saw that with the England national teams last summer um, and you know maybe this World Cup will be one too soon for, for the senior team but you can certainly imagine that that winning culture uh, and that consistent culture that the England teams have had over the last year or so will hopefully uh, for England fans I'm Welsh but for England fans <laughs> will bear fruit in, uh, in 2022 and I think not only the winning culture as you said but also um, tournament experience I think yeah. Um, by that I mean essentially going away for up to three weeks in that environment um, you mentioned you've experienced that not not in a football context yeah um, so uh, I'm a hockey player previously that was my main sport or is my main sport um, and uh, after injury I actually was part of the Welsh Nationals set up um, that went to European Championships and I, I went as the analyst because uh, at that Point I'd started my analysis career at Everton and uh, wanted to stay involved in hockey while I was injured and um, so was part of that process and, and that was my tournament experience it was a, a three two and a half week I think um, tournament um, and it is a very different environment it is challenging um, you know I think you take the the sort of social aspects of being away from family for an extended period and um, and it being an intense environment to having to share rooms with the same person for two and a half weeks can be challenging. Um, so I, I imagine the uh, the England team have got their own rooms, but you never know. But uh, from an analyst perspective, the intensity of that two and a half weeks, you, I certainly was having to analyse the oppositions as well as analyse our own performance from each game. Um, and you know there are games, two or three games a day. And you know for the England team in this World Cup for any of the governing bodies in this World Cup I think there's two two games a day in the group stages maybe yeah, three yeah there's one day when you get I think you get the four, four games at, right four yeah games a day. so you know you can't people you, people may not think about this but you can't just analyse the teams in your group because you have to know every possible scenario of any team that you could face in the latter stages um, and again that's where data and video and technology comes in you know being able to provide those services to teams where you can immediately access that information after the games is, is a huge support but it is challenging that certainly that two and a half week period being an analyst for, for, for Wales in the hockey was was a real challenge because 
I didn't get much sleep um, because there was a lot to do in a short space of time. Uh, yeah, for, forgive my ignorance. I don't know if Wales made it to the knockout stage <laughs> of that particular European Championships. Um, um, we got to knockout stages, just didn't get to the final. So with yeah, with the knockout stages, obviously you don't know who you're going to play uh, yeah. until quite late. So. Yeah. Um, I think we had Tolly from Tolly Coburn from uh, Arsenal Academy come on a little while back, and he said that he um, he did some work at Wimbledon. Obviously, you don't know who you're going to play in that tournament as well, so you've got to go down both routes and how that not only impacts the report you deliver, the analysis you deliver, but also the game plan of who you're working for as well, how that influences yeah. things. I mean, I think again, if we're talking about the long-term approach of national teams and national setups, um, they will have analysed all of the the teams competing uh, in the World Cup this summer. I imagine most of the analysts weren't particularly happy when it got expanded to 32 teams. They'll be happy for 48 teams. Well, yeah. exactly, yeah. So, you know, there's a there's a lot of football to watch. I'd actually say the biggest challenge with, um, and this is actually as relevant to cup football in, in club football, is you don't know who's going to play. You don't even know who's going to get selected. I mean, I think the last um, national team squad has just dropped in the last day or so. So you could be waiting to know who that 23 is. You've got last-minute dropouts with injury. Um, teams can change relatively frequently. Having a squad of 23 world-class players means that you could change your, your team every game. So for an analyst, that's really hard because you've got to predict what you think is going to happen. Um, you could ba- I mean, If you based, let's say, you know we're playing against England, if you look at the turnover of that England squad over the last year to 18 months, what it looked like in the qualifiers to what it looks like now, it's quite different. So I think that's a challenge. Um, it's maybe not the time frames because again, the data, the videos, all accessible immediately. They'll have done a lot of the work building up to the tournament, so they'll just be fitting in stuff around the games that have happened. It's more predicting who's going to play. Um, so that's I think the the biggest challenge those guys will face. Um, but one of the things that we've certainly been very impressed by and maybe encouraged by is the number of staff that are um, manning these these analyst posts at governing bodies now it's a growing field um, governing bodies are investing a lot in these people now so hopefully they've got the manpower to do what they need to do uh, in, in all of these cases excellent and we're slightly shorter pod today so i'm going to wrap it up with one final question uh, one final topic um we know that now the World Cup will see uh, technology in the dugouts. Um, a lot's been spoken about this. What are your first thoughts when you when you heard about this? How do you think it would impact the way you'd approach it as an analyst? How do you think analysts will adapt to this new uh, this new change? I think it, it opens a lot of opportunities for analysts. Um, I think that the biggest challenge for those analysts is changing the processes and the, and the culture within the coaching staff. Historically, um, and certainly in club football, in the last few years it's mainly been focused around communicating to the bench normally through the sports scientists or the physios um, maybe an assistant coach will be the guy with an earpiece so obviously being able to send them content onto an iPad is going to be huge um, and I think it's just then a case of how do they interpret that information quickly so that is going to be the key how do you present that information to a coach so that he can immediately pick out what you're trying to tell him and then be able to communicate that um, or use that information to make decisions. That's going to be the challenge for analysts is not sending too much information, not overwhelming the coach because it just won't get used. So I think that's that's where a lot of um, my thought process was, was how do we 
present the Opta data better to communicate that to coaches and, and make it clearer. And that's something we've certainly spent a lot of time thinking about. Yeah, I think it's a case where you see a lot of work done um, where there are some fantastic visualizations with fantastic concepts shown, but they need the context, they need the information around it. Um, you know, with it being 20 minutes to go in a knockout game, you're probably not afforded that luxury of, yeah. of explaining through. So that's going to be a real challenge of trying to get that information across to perhaps someone when you'd normally have 90 seconds, two minutes to talk it through. That's now, yeah. that window's now gone. Yeah, I mean, people ask you all the time about kind of how data or video can impact things live in games. And the reality is, at the moment, before this, this announcement, you were only able to communicate something verbally or in the 90 seconds you get at half time to show them something you might show them two or three clips and you're done so it's really hard to impact the game in a live environment this will certainly open up the opportunities i think it'll be interesting in this world cup i think we're probably very early stages of being able to know how we can impact the game we've wanted to be able to do this for a while but but once those opportunities are created you've then got to figure out the most efficient way to do it. So um, I'm sure there'll be a lot of um, teams who will be using this technology. I think the most effective and efficient way to do that is still uh, a few years away. Excellent, that's a, that's a nice place to end it. Thank you very much, Ben. Thanks, Ryan. Really enjoyed that. Thank you very much for listening.